Whether you like it or not, your social media feed is filtered by moderators sitting in Silicon Valley, or perhaps around the world, in fact. And this could soon change with the United States Supreme Court this week hearing arguments in what has been dubbed the most important First Amendment cases of the internet era, where the right for platforms to moderate disinformation and hate speech could be at risk. David Green is a senior staff attorney and civil liberties director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of San Francisco Law School. Uh, David, the case is built on two separate laws, one in Texas, the other in Florida, that dictate what moderation efforts social media companies can make on their platforms. Can you just start by explaining what these laws are and why they've been put into effect in, in the first place? Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll try and be very general. There's a lot of details to the law, but very generally, the Texas law uh, says that uh, social media platforms, when they moderate content in any way, so this is not just deciding to take down posts or leave them up or or suspend accounts. This is when they amplify what they choose to recommend or highlight. When they make those decisions, they cannot consider viewpoint of the speaker. And this is both the viewpoint expressed in the post as well as the any viewpoint the speaker may have expressed anywhere. It would it, so they're not allowed the platforms would violate the law if they consider the speaker's viewpoint in their moderation decision. Uh, the Florida law, is different. It's similar in that it is requiring the platforms, legally requiring them to carry certain speech and not negatively moderate it. But the Florida law is limited to uh, requiring them to publish and and treat equally and uh, uh, treat consistently is the language of the law. All posts by political candidates within a certain number of days before an election. Uh, a certain number of weeks, actually, but uh, before an election, as well as all posts by certain what the law calls journalistic entities, um, and so those are the those are the two laws. They they share the commonality in that they both require social media sites to publish or to more positively moderate. Uh, certain posts and removes their editorial abilities otherwise. So I think most social media users would remember the uh, these companies being very hands-off uh, in their approach to disinformation on their platforms that often appear before Senate committees and such, saying we're not publishers, we're a platform, we're just a sort of the, the, the mailman, not the letter writer, so to speak. So when did all this start to change? Would it have something to do with the number of users that are in decline in these platforms, getting turned off by missing or disinformation? Well, I, I, I don't know about misinformation in particular, but these sites have almost always since their beginning, and at least really since 2007, which I think predates most of them, have always moderated some content on their sites. They really was never a time when they were purely passive. And um, and so they, they would always uh, remove some material, often for political reasons, often uh, otherwise. Um, it, and when we and this became even more moderation became even more common as sites went uh, as recommendations became 
um, more of a feature of social media. Now we even have some of our most popular social media sites are more recommendation-based than they are follower-based. And because the recommendation system is inherently you know, non-passive, right? You're you're picking some posts to highlight and recommend, um, and some to not. So, this idea that they were that there was a time when the sites were completely passive or neutral is really not was really never the case. Even if they describe themselves that way, that was really never the case. Misinformation um, became has always been a concern. Uh, but it it be, I think it's become a larger concern. There were with two things that happened. Um, first of all, there were um, there were several high profile incidents of misinformation re- around elections. Uh, the the most you know with this was there was some belief that this uh, played a role in several international elections, including the U.S. election in 2016. I think the revelations have, the revelations are from the Cambridge Analytica scandal for for one. Yeah, well, I think Cambridge Analytica made it seem how many people have a concern. Uh, they had a larger concern that there was some manipulation going on, right? That that the system, the, these these platforms, could be gamed, you know, in some way. Um, and then what I think really brought it to a head was COVID and the pandemic and uh, this idea that the, sort of the fight we saw between public health officials trying to get what they thought was best advice out there and sort of waves of counter advice you know circulating not just in social media but in all through all information vectors it's obviously not uncommon to hear the first amendment the right to freedom of speech used as a well a bit of a coverall excuse for discriminatory statements but on the other hand you have companies exercising their right to moderate what is published on their platforms I mean, who's in, in a legal sense? Who's more on the side of the law here? Is it the companies, or or is it the amendment itself? Well, I think in in this case, I think that the companies for have First Amendment rights, and I think the law, each of these laws, violates the company's First Amendment rights, and and because they do uh, private entities, and this is this has been a very a common feature of U.S. law. You know, private entities, whether they are news organizations or whether they are, there's a famous case in U.S. law with a parade organizer, or whether they are, you know, art uh, exhibitors that curate exhibits uh, of other people's work. Um, have it's always been recognized that they have a First Amendment right to speak by selecting the speech of others. And and so in some ways, this is a very standard application of that of that legal principle. We, the, the complication here is that what the what the platform seem to be doing at the same time, though, is make it more difficult for some people to speak. And I think that's what makes it a harder and more confusing case. We, of course, had a similar legal challenge here in Australia a few years ago where the High Court found media companies in Australia liable for comments made on their social media pages by other people. I mean, if this uh, and these sort of social media companies are successful in arguing they are more like a newspaper than a carriage service, could they possibly open themselves up to similar liabilities? Well, not under U.S. law because U.S. law, there's, a, there's statutory protections for 
um, for online services, not just social media, but uh, online uh, services that provide intermediary services. So under U.S. law, there is in many situations the, the such services are statutorily immune from liability. And, um, and user comments is a very classic situation where that immunity would shield them. Senior Attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, David Green, is here. We're talking about Big Tech's First Amendment fight with the Supreme Court on RN Drive. The the, the consequences when it comes to uh, the sort of uh, the far-reaching implications of this case, in terms of social media companies, how do you think it was going to affect how they operate, but also how uh, they operate not only in the US, but internationally? So, well, let me start with just the US. Uh, If... If the if these laws are upheld, um, or even if they are even if they're not upheld, but the Supreme Court um, says something that really weakens their First Amendment rights to moderate their platforms, it's just going to open up to a lot of other regulation. And I think we'll see regulation on all sides. So I think we'll see some states uh, passing laws trying to force them to publish some things and other states passing laws uh, trying to make them not publish some things. And we're we're seeing a little bit of this right now in the U.S. For example, uh, states such as New York and California are trying to make efforts to discourage, or or, I'm sorry, really, really strongly encourage very active moderation with things like um, hateful speech. Uh, And we're seeing other states, again, such as Florida and Texas in this case, um, very much they're trying to compel them to to publish speech. And I think we'll see this this same variation, and it might even happen within states, right? So you could have a state like Florida that says you must publish this information, but you can't publish this information. That would be the consequence of really weakening their First Amendment rights. How that will affect the whole world um, it, that will be interesting to see. In in some ways, these services can only there's a limits to how much they can tailor their sites to individual localities. They might be able to do it based if they have unique domains in a country. They might be able to have different rules that way. But for the service in general, it's actually quite difficult to have vastly different rules in each of the world's jurisdictions. Uh, all the more important in this uh, U.S. election year, uh, Senior Staff Attorney and Civil Liberties Director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, also Adjunct Professor at the University of San Francisco Law School. David Green, appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.